1: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: This is the story of a portly and bespectacled man who had a gentle smile overshadowed by a walrus mustache. This is a man who saved Manchester United who financed the club's first ever League and Cup glories and whose legacy lives on every time Manchester United play because he funded and inspired the move to Old Trafford. This man is John Henry Davies, and you're listening to United Through Time.
3: Without him, I think the club could probably went into extinction.
2: As an incurably ambitious and rebellious man, John Henry Davies transformed Newton Heath Football Club into the globally recognised institution of Manchester United. He became despised by the football authorities and sometimes by his own fans. He risked it all and with money, ruthlessness and passion, he became one of the most important men in the history of Manchester United. When the club was in its darkest hours, then known as Newton Heath, Davies stepped up. A member of the industrial aristocracy, Davies dedicated a quarter of a century to building this great club up. In his 25 years as president, the club changed its name to Manchester United, changed its colours to red and white, won two league titles, an FA Cup and two charity shields, and moved to Old Trafford. Oh, Hi, is John Henry, is a very, very
3: important figure in United's history.
2: This proud Manchester man who could be both ruthless in business and kindly sympathetic and charitable is the subject of episode 3 of United Through Time, the new podcast delving into Manchester United's long and famous history. Going in chronological order, United Through Time focuses on the most important individuals at the club since it was founded as Newton Heath in 1878. In episode 1, we looked at Louis Rocca, T-boy, groundsman, chief scout, fixer-manager, charismatic Italian. In episode 2, it was the womanising, beer-drinking, hard-tackling captain Harry Stafford, a man without whom Manchester United would likely have folded in 1902. But now, enjoy the story of a man obsessed by the status and success of Manchester United, John Henry Davies. Paul
3: Stafford today is part of Davies' legacy.
2: I'm your host, Harry Robinson, and joining me on this episode of United Through Time will be the great-granddaughter of John Henry Davies, Joe Jones, author and esteemed Manchester United historian Ian McCartney, author Ian Gardiner, and Manchester football historian and honorary research fellow at De Montfort University, Gary James. In December 1927, Manchester United held their annual general meeting. One of the matters to be discussed was the recent death of club president John Henry Davies. The club referred to their present proud and secure financial position. Davies had taken a step back after World War One and the directors thought that they had become financially stable. They were wrong. Even in his less active years as president, the club had been underpinned by interest-free loans from Davies. He had propped them up right until his death at the age of 63. At the age of 37, he had taken over. He had poured money into the club and he had never stopped, not even while he incurred the complete and utter public wrath of the Football Association. He wanted a team of Manchester men to make Manchester proud. He had seen that team win an FA Cup and two league titles. He and his wife Amy had travelled thousands of miles by motorcar to watch the Reds play over the years. He had started out as a sports fan, but not a football fan. But over the years he found himself becoming more and more obsessed. He hadn't followed football at all in 1902, and when he invited his business friends to come and watch a game at United, they were shocked by how excited and enthralled their otherwise calm friend became when watching United. Sometimes he would have to leave games before the end because he couldn't bear the tension. He loved Manchester United, and he saw them achieve greatness in the 1900s. After the war, things declined, but he saw his old Trafford Stadium filled by 70,000 people on a couple of occasions and his real impact can be seen by what happened after his death. The club may have referred to a secure financial position, but within a year of his death there would be serious problems, and that was even while Amy Davies, John Henry's wife, was occasionally sending over sums of £5,000 every so often to help. In 1931, the second coming of J.H. Davies was needed, and it did come, in the form of James W. Gibson. He, too, saved the club from bankruptcy, just like Davies had done, Four years it had taken after Davies' death for the club to be on the brink of extinction once again. His impact can be seen in that alone. But there's things much more important than just that, and you're about to hear them all. Davies came from a normal family, not a wealthy one. His mother, Susanna, was from Cheshire. His father, David Davies, was an engine driver and warehouse engineer and moved to Tutbury, a large village in Staffordshire, about 70 miles from Manchester. He moved there in the early 1860s to find work. Davy's family had been living in Manchester originally and they would return by 1871. John Henry was born in 1864 in Tutsbury, Staffordshire and baptised the following year. He was the fifth child of ten in his family.
3: He wasn't born into a a wealthy family at all.
2: He was educated in Cholton-upon-Medlock, at what school isn't known but he developed into a good mathematician. Those math skills meant that when he left school he became a cashier, a lofty job with quite large responsibility in those days. That was his first move into the working world and he soon became an estate agent, or a commission agent as it was known then. He met Amy Cattrell in 1886 and married her two years later in 1888. They had their first child in 1889 called Elsie. John Henry's wife was the niece of the hugely wealthy sugar magnate Sir Henry Tate. He was part of Tate and Lyle, a massive company in the sugar industry. Amy Cattrell was an heiress of Mr Tate, and so you would have thought that Davies would benefit from Sir Henry Tate's money, particularly upon Tate's death in 1899. But that wasn't quite the case. He received nothing after his death. Tate had taken a disliking for him from the oth, and it had been in spite of that that Amy had married John Henry back in 1888. But that didn't matter, because as he worked as a commission agent, Davies began to earn more. He accumulated properties where he could, and then became the owner of the Derby Arms on Derby Street Salford. Now, he was a landlord and an innkeeper. It didn't take long for Davies to realise where the money was, where the real money was. He began to acquire shares in various breweries. As Ian Gardiner writes in his book on Harry Stafford, Manchester needed beer like it needed oxygen. But Davies had noticed a shift in the sale of beer. It was no longer important who made the best product, but was how many properties each brewery owned. If they owned a property, only their beer would be sold there. Hotels, bars, restaurants... The breweries were becoming more and more powerful and rich, and landlords were following the opposite pattern. And so, as he worked as a landlord, Davies bought shares in the John Henry Lees Brewery, Walker & Humphrey's Brewery, and the Manchester Brewery Company. In 1900, more than 6,000 people were poisoned by arsenic-tainted beer. Davies took particular advantage at this point. It hit Manchester hardest and 70 people were killed. Arsenic had entered the supply chain through impure sugar, made with contaminated sulphuric acid. The share price of all affected breweries dropped massively, but Davies was smart, shrewd. He acknowledged the drop, but knew that beer's popularity would never diminish in the long term, so he bought up shares everywhere. Not only this, but the breweries which weren't affected saw their share prices increase dramatically. Of course, Davies had shares here too, and so, once again, he made money. He became a director at the John Henry Lees Brewery back in the 1890s. Then he was a chairman at Walker & Humphrey's Brewery and later the Manchester Brewery Company too. He was a shareholder in many places and a rich man everywhere. Davies and his wife Amy became philanthropists once they found wealth, well before they got involved with Newton Heath Football Club. They were known for their support of local sports and charities in Manchester, particularly bowls and cycling. Joe Jones, the great granddaughter of John Henry Davies, suggested that Davies may have even owned Haydock Racecourse, situated between Manchester and Liverpool, and now owned by the Jockey Club.
1: I, I think John Henry also owned Haydock Racecourse, is my understanding as well.
2: Whether that was true or not, we don't know, but Davies represented the new industrial aristocracy of the era, sticking to the idea of noblesse oblige, whereby you act well to others if you become rich despite a regular background. Davies was not a football fan though, and so the struggles of Newton Heath at the turn of the century would not have been on his mind, or perhaps not even known to him at all for some time yet. The financial struggles of Newton Heath were significant. The team weren't doing too badly, but bad decisions from the board and years of cutting corners and just about managing were catching up with everyone involved. The story of these financial troubles and the eventual saving of Newton Eath by John Henry Davies involves a fat goose, a Swiss mountain rescue dog and an accountant knocked over on his bike by a horse. To begin with, the goose. As finances dropped at the turn of the century, the men in charge at Newton Eath tried anything to bring more paying customers into the Bank Street Stadium for games. That's how football clubs made most of their income, through tickets. Alf Albert was Newton Heath's secretary and had been the first ever full-time employee back in 1892. To try and entice people in, he advertised the Bank Lane Canary, an exciting prospect at the time. About 200 extra fans piled in, but it turned out to just be Albert's Christmas goose, being fattened up in public. Albert's goose fattening showed how desperate the situation at Newton Heath was. They had had four consecutive fourth-place finishes in the second division before financial trouble hit but now they weren't paying wages to players and instead were splitting the gate receipts between their squad. Newton Heath weren't exactly an attractive club. With Manchester City down the road being Manchester's main club, Newton Heath had far less support, and for good reasons. They were a team of brutes, described as fallible, unkempt and savage in Eric Midwinter's book Red Shirts and Roses, while Ian Gardiner, in his book on Harry Stafford, calls them a bunch of fucking psychopaths. Eric Midwinter also writes... There are anecdotes of unpaid bills, badly paid players, dubious deals and disastrous results. This wasn't rare for football. While cricket clubs were treated as a gentleman's club with ideals of sport and enjoyment, football clubs took to the 19th century ideals of profit and progress. Directors wanted a profit, not just a football club, not just a pastime. That's not just a 21st century Glazer phenomenon. In 1900, Newtonese financial troubles were significant, if not yet life-threatening. Alone here and there, a big attendance boosting the takings every so often. The club tried to appease their money issues by selling Joe Cassidy to Manchester City. Cassidy was the club's finest ever striker, and his loss was massive. He cost City a meagre £250. Alf Albert, the secretary at the time, and remember that secretary was today's equivalent of manager, was furious with the deal. The average attendance at Bank Street fell to 6,000 in what became a vicious cycle. The club couldn't buy or keep their best players, and the football on show became worse and worse, and so the attendance kept dropping, and the club had even less money, and so on. The attendance would fall by another 2,000 in the next year. When John Henry Davies took over, he would arrest this cycle with a new philosophy. Manager Alf Albert was unhappy at the selling of star striker Cassidy. He left not too long after. James West of Lincoln City took over, being helped by Captain Harry Stafford in all matters. A grand bazaar was to be held in 1901 to raise funds. Newton Heath needed £2,000 to save the club, but raised only £300. Geoffrey Green aptly wrote in the centenary history of Manchester United that the bazaar turned out to be more colourful than profitable. It was a failure, as you have heard in episodes 1 and 2 of United Through Time, and as you'll know by now, it took a St Bernard dog to turn bazaar from fun to funds. (laughs) The bazaar was held a couple of months after Britons had been turned into Edwardians overnight. Queen Victoria had died, Edward had become king. And on February 27th 1902, Sir James Ferguson MP opened the Grand Bazaar at the St James's Hall on the Oxford Road in Manchester. The theme was of sunny lands. It was somewhat odd then that a main attraction was the Swiss mountain rescue dog, Major, the St Bernard yet he was liked by all in attendance, and some of those in the local pubs too, and had a metal box tied to his collar, or sometimes his back, in which he collected money for the club. In an unsurprising turn of events, Major escaped the hall on the final day of the bazaar, and Harry Stafford, Newton Eath captain, was left without his beloved dog, who had once saved his life at sea. Major had made his way up to Albert Square, through Cross Street, and into a Wills restaurant. Ian Gardiner, author of Harry Stafford, Manchester United's first Captain Marvel, Explained.
4: Just off St. Anne's Square stood Will's restaurant. It was uh, popular with the cotton exchange set and boasted of having the finest oysters in Manchester. And it was here that Stafford St. Bernard uh, ingratiated himself with the manager, Mr. John Robert Thomas.
2: John Henry Davis had officers next door but one to Will's and he often dined there. The manager, John Robert Thomas, took him in briefly before 37-year-old John Henry Davies, a frequenter of the restaurant, came to dine there a couple of days later. He saw Major the dog and took him home to his large mansion. His wife noticed a lost and found advert in the newspaper, and Amy told John Henry. Fred Palmer, the Newton East chairman, had posted the advert on behalf of Harry Stafford. The full advert read,
4: Lost lemon and white submerged dog. Answers to Major. From St James's Hall, Saturday night about eleven thirty. Apply F. W. Palmer, thirty-eight Gibbon Street, Manchester.
2: At this time, Davies was living at his mansion called Beach House in Alderley, a village in the Cheshire countryside where many of United and City's footballers now buy houses. Major would have been loving the huge fifteen acres of grounds he could romp around in, as well as the cook, tennis courts, and stables. Harry Stafford was contacted by Davies and told to come to Beach House where he and Davies spoke and Stafford told the wealthy brewer of his football club's financial troubles. No agreement was made there but Stafford and Davies began to communicate and about a year later Davies saved Newton Heath. Initially, Davies gave Harry Stafford one of his pubs to manage the Bridge Inn in Ancoats. He recognised the potential benefits of having a much-loved footballer behind the bar and indeed, he was right. Newton Heath fans would often drink at Stafford's pub making Davies money. Now the story around Davies' first ventures onto Bank Street to save Newton Heath from the abyss is told in so many different ways. The story about the St Bernard could well be more myth than truth, but though all those who recite it, including me, accept that there is some exaggeration here, some falsehood there, it does seem like there was at least some connection between the St Bernard dog and John Henry Davies. Quite where the story played out as I just explained, we will never know for sure but there was another connection that saw John Henry Davies discover the trials and tribulations of Newton Heath, and I think it's probably these stories combined together, the story of a St Bernard dog, and the story of an accountant knocked over on his bike by a horse that created the situation whereby John Henry Davies saved Newton Heath. You'll hear that particular tale very shortly. But going back to the period just after the failed Grand Bazaar in 1901, Newton Heath were clearly still in trouble, and the weather gods weren't going to help either. Newton East 1901 Christmas Day fixture was postponed because of rain decimating the pitch. A massive attendance had been expected both because it was Christmas Day and because locals wanted to help the struggling club. But with rain calling the game off, the big gate receipts that Newton East officials had been expecting to bring in couldn't be taken. Money from tickets, remember, was the club's main source of income and the constant bad weather wasn't helping throughout the season. Soon after this, the first inkling of the club being wound up, being condemned to a pub quiz question or a matter of insignificance, came in early 1902, January. The Athletic News reported of a greatly regrettable situation whereby one of the oldest association teams in the country could cease to exist. Former Newton Heath director William Healy had brought a winding up order against the club after much deliberation on his part. He had lent the heathens around £242, a sum in today's money of around £29,500. He didn't really have much choice. And so, on January the 13th, Newton Heath game against Middlesbrough was postponed after officials turned up to the Bank Street ground, only to find that the official receiver had locked the gates. To make it even more of a kick in the stomach, it was finally a day of great weather. But no football could be played, no money could be taken in. A few days later, the Football League held a meeting to discuss the matter. Back at Newton Heath, the players were desperate to see things resolved. Ahead of an away match against Bristol, one player remarked that he had never known the team to train harder than they had done this week. Harry Stafford's efforts to raise money locally had created a pot big enough for the team to travel down to Bristol, but not enough to stay overnight. And so, after starting their journey at four in the morning, the knack of heathens were beaten 4 0 by Bristol. All their efforts had been in vain. But at least they played the game. Just after that Bristol game, the judge, Reginald Brown, ruled that Newton Heath should be allowed to play at their ground again at Bank Street. It was a stay of execution, perhaps encouraged by the efforts of those involved with the team. But for the first game back against Blackpool at home, snow fell and so only a small attendance was recorded again. February the 1st, 1902 saw the FA decree that Newton Heath should be allowed to carry out the season's fixtures under the management of their current board. The Athletic News responded to this by urging the Newton Heath directors to call supporters together for a meeting to explain the situation. Soon after, they would happily report that there is no question of extension for the Newton Heath club after they appeared in court once more and were given a further stay of execution. They explained that there would be very serious financial consequences for all involved, but that they had no fear of the club collapsing completely. Looking back, it's quite surprising that they were so certain. At this point, It was very possible that things could have deteriorated even further. Now, it's at this time that we drop back into the story of John Henry Davies. Yes, he's already made contact because of a much loved St Bernard dog, but that dog remains under the ownership of Newton Heath captain, Harry Stafford. Davies has not invested any money in this football club, and they remain on the brink. Ian McCartney helps to explain a different, more logical version of events that led to John Henry Davies saving Newton Heath. What
3: it was, it It was heading home uh, from work one Saturday afternoon in his horse and trap. And uh, he actually knocked this lad off his bicycle. And he got out to see who it was, what had happened sort of thing. And it turned out it was a, a gentleman called George Lawton, who was actually an accountant with Walker and Holmes Brewery, which was owned by by Davies. So uh, the lad got up off his bicycle just about to give the... The chap knocked him down a right mouthful He seen it as his boss. So he thought, well, I better not do that. So um, Davies said to him, so, right, he said, right, well, what's the harrys, where are you going? He said, no, oh, it's Saturday afternoon, I'm going to Heath, I'm going up Oldham
2: Road to to the football. Davies was supposedly impressed by the passion of this football fan who worked for Davies as an accountant and had grown up alongside him in Chaltern-upon-Medlock.
3: But when Lawton actually got to the ground, they found out the bailiffs were also in attendance and they were outside the three-stunstiles taking all the money that was being paid by the supporters to enter the ground. Um, So following the game, Lawton had a a chat with Harry Stafford, who, funny enough, owned a St. Bernard's dog, and together they actually set off to Davis's house and managed to persuade Davis uh, to pay a visit to Newton-Hughes' ground, see what was what. And uh, after that... um, Davies decided to pay off all his existing debts and he began attending games on a regular basis and Lawton himself actually became a director of the club later on.
2: Again, this story cannot be verified. It's just as romantic as a St Bernard story and together they create a film-like coming together of events that led to John Henry Davies saving Newton Heath. And so Davies was now in the know about the situation at this local football club. This is February 1902. Quite when he knocked over George Lawton on his bike can't be said, but it's likely to have been in late January or early February. On February 15th, Manchester's official receiver declared that the club had a total liability of £2,670, the equivalent of over £300,000 in today's money. But behind the scenes were developments that meant Newton Heath's situation could be about to improve. Harry Stafford and co. were still working tirelessly to keep the club afloat for fans like George Lawton and on February the 22nd, the Manchester Evening News reported the following. We are asked by a late director to state that a Mr G. H. Davies was a gentleman who recently signed a new player named Higson, and he did so at the request of three members of the present committee. The Evening News' report had made one slight error. It was J. H. Davies, not G. H., but this is our John Henry Davies. He'd got his foot in the door. He was proving to the current board that he was committed to helping. The player in question was a James Higson, signed from the Manchester Wednesday team, and he only played a couple of games, but that's not the relevant bit. Davies had been impressed by the abundance of commitment and loyalty of Harry Stafford, as well as the fan George Lawton. He'd seen both sides of the story, Stafford as a player, captain, manager, doing everything he could to save the club, and Lawton as a fan, desperate to see his side play and stay alive. It's likely Lawton and Stafford approached Davies together at his house in orderly, and begged him to come and save the club, and it's at this point where it's likely Davies took a St Bernard dog in return for saving Newton Heath. About a month after Davies had signed James Higson for Newton Heath, the Manchester Evening News reported another major break in the story. The Newton Heath officials have at length decided upon calling their supporters together, and a public meeting will be held next Tuesday evening in the new Islington Hall. The supporters gathered in Ancoats, in cloth caps, cigars in mouth, tobacco smoke filling the air... The grizzled, husky voices of manual labourers chatting away with the noise rising towards the roof and merging into a block of indistinguishable chatter. Chairman Fred Palmer stopped that. He gave a summary of the club's finances, speaking to a solemn audience. As Palmer revealed the extent of Newtonese woes, Captain Harry Stafford asked him how much the club needed to stay alive. He was told £2,000. Stafford said he had five men who would give £200 each and gave the names of himself... John Henry Davies, James Taylor, James Bone and George Lawton, the knocked over cycling accountant. All these men, aside from Stafford, were reasonably wealthy, but their most important asset was that they were friends of the quite stupidly wealthy John Henry Davies. Loud cheering greeted this announcement, and the large audience would not be satisfied until Mr Stafford ascended the platform. Davies himself was not here for this moment. By March 27th, there was already a hesitancy as to the validity of Stafford's claims and quite whether these men were willing to save the club. Very little headway seems to have been made, the newspapers reported. Part of the reason for that was that the board had realised that Davies wanted to take over the club, not simply prop it up and help them. They were apprehensive because they'd put a lot of their own money into Newton Heath, even if they had done so in an irresponsible and ineffective manner. Davies wanted to run things, of course. It seems that wasn't his intention at the start, when he first heard of Newton Heath's troubles. But he was a shrewd businessman with a sharp eye for profit and a visionary mind in terms of the profitability of football. It wasn't simply a matter of saving the club through sympathy, it was about increasing his own reputation.
3: could well have been seen as a, a sort of community thing, he was serving the community. You could think, well, he, he owns a brewery, so if word got out that he was sort of back in Newton Heath, Manchester United... He would be thinking, from a business perspective, that the supporters would visit his brewery, his hotel that was uh, had his actual drink rather than go to one that didn't.
2: He recognised that football could be used for profit. He'd already shown that when he gave Harry Stafford a pub in Ancoats to manage. It was guaranteed money having a footballer behind the bar. He also gave Billy Meredith the funds to start his famous sports equipment shop in Saint Peter's Square. According to Mark Metcalf, Davies was shrewd and wanted a profit. But it shouldn't be forgotten that he was also a proud Mancunian and a sports fan who had been impressed by the loyalty of the men involved at Newton Heath, particularly Stafford and Lawton. By April 3rd, though, more caution was being given in the newspapers. Davies had offered £110 to take over and the Newton Heath board had turned it down. Very little probability of any further conference was the judgment of the local papers. But eight days later, an amicable settlement was the headline. John Henry Davies had seen his offer of £110 refused, and so offered £210, and that was accepted. Just like that, Newton Heath had been saved. John Henry Davies had kneeled down and picked up the ashes of this football club that was so loved in the local community, despite all of its faults. Davies and his mates would take charge on May 18th, at the end of the football season, but they were already getting to work. By the start of May, Newton ETH had already changed name and huge plans for the Bank Street ground were already underway.
4: Ryan Reynolds here
0: from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
4: John Henry Davis was now the man in control. All the board members besides Stafford and Councillor Edward Bishop were Davis's men. And all the money for the takeover almost certainly came out of John Henry's wallet.
2: Within a decade's time of taking over, Davies would see his club win two league titles, an FA Cup, two charity shields and one day in February 1910 he would stand upon a beautifully kept pitch at Old Trafford, the finest football stadium in the land for one of the nation's finest football teams. But on the 13th of September 1902, 20,000 people crammed into this old Bank Street ground. Daniel Hurst scored the only goal of the game for the new Manchester United Football Club, who celebrated a 1-0 win against Burton United on that late summer's day. United, the Reds, terms so common now, but they were hardly in existence then. United had only just begun to play in any kind of Red, but those Reds would have been greeted on the pitch by a rejuvenated and excitable support. The new Manchester United had been called Newton Heath only three months earlier. This Manchester United could have disappeared into oblivion only three months earlier. But instead, John Henry Davies watched on as his side donned their new red and white kits. Back in May, Newton East's new owners, led by the incurably ambitious Davies, set to work. The Heathens had just beaten friendly rivals Manchester City in the final of the Manchester Senior Cup, and they were in good spirits. J.H. Davies and his partners were beginning to put their house in readiness for the opening of next season. It is intended that the ground shall be second to none in this country. That's what the local papers said. These ambitions to have the country's finest ground would later write Davies' legacy that is still in place today with Old Trafford. But for now, Newton Heath was still at Bank Street, and there were no half-measures with John Henry Davies. The two stands without roofs were set to be covered, while an entirely new stand was being erected. Only four months before these plans, in January, Bank Street's gates had been locked in chains by the official receiver because Newton Heath were in such deep financial trouble. Davies was in full control now and his impact was so enormous. A condition of his takeover was that the old board would be swept away. Davies was keen to see the club progress, to see a shift from a district side to a national side, to transform it from a pastime of the working man to a nationally recognised ambassador for Mancunian self-esteem, as Jim White writes. He was a proud Manchester man, and he wanted a team of Manchester men to make Manchester proud. One of the first steps in the process of achieving that was a change in name.
3: An iconic name,
2: globally renowned, its origins are very unclear. All we know is that by the end of April 1902, Manchester United had been decided upon, and by the end of May, it had been approved by the Lancashire FA. John Henry Davies wanted a new name, and in particular, he was desperate for Manchester to be in that name. Just as I said earlier, he wanted United to put Manchester, the city, on the world map. Manchester City had had great success in changing their name from Ardwick. They represented the city of Manchester. Newton Heath only represented Newton Heath. And so it was Manchester United. The first use of the name Manchester United came about a year earlier, in 1901. Harry Stafford, captain and saviour of Newton Heath, was holding a benefit match for himself against the new Brighton Tower. He was getting old and was adored and could do with the money. A mixed team of players from Newton Heath, Manchester City and a few other local clubs agreed to play together. This mixed team won 4-2 against the Southerners. Joe Cassidy and Billy Meredith of City played alongside Stafford, but they didn't play under the name of Newton Heath. Instead, they played under the name of Manchester United. No one thought much of it at the time. On Thursday the 24th of April 1902, a year or so later, Newton Heath's name was changed to Manchester United. It would come into force for the next season. A vote was put to fans between sticking with Newton Heath and changing to United, and the obvious choice won. There is one unverified claim that J. Bone, Davies' right-hand man, was the person to suggest Manchester United the name. Louis Rocker, the subject of episode 1 of United Through Time, always claimed that it was he who came up with the name. But according to Brian Belton in his book Red Dawn, the Gorton Report, a local newspaper, implied that Bowen had suggested Manchester United. This isn't mentioned anywhere else, but it's another interesting twist in what is an extremely vague tale. Manchester United in red shirts. The cup final. Manchester begun. United was one thing, but another change was just as significant: red and white strips. Where this idea came from is even more of an unknown. The first season in red and white was the 1902-03 campaign. Up until 1896, Newton Heath had played in green and gold, but then in blue and white for eight years. So we know that the colours changed when Davies arrived, and why he did so, and why they did, is obvious. United had a new name, a new brand, and so it was only natural for the colours to change too. But why he would prefer red and white isn't obvious. Neither the Manchester Brewery or the Walker and Humphreys Brewery Company had red as a colour on their crest or their products, so it can't have come from there. If it was down to Davies, it's quite possible that he simply liked the colour red. But it could just as well have been the suggestion of one of the club's volunteers, someone like Louis Rocker, although obviously not him because he wouldn't have shut up about it for the next half a century if it had been him. Whatever the scenario, there doesn't seem to have been any symbolism involved. It was almost certainly just the fact that someone liked the colour red. On the 6th of September, Manchester United played their first ever game with the new name and the new kit. Charlie Richards scored the only goal of the game in a 1-0 away win against Gainsborough Trinity. The first home game came seven days later, against Burton United. Crowds were lured in by the excitement around the rejuvenated club, but particularly by the new, all-embracing Manchester branding. The first game drew in 20,000 spectators at Bank Street, and the average attendance for the season almost trebled, from 4,000 the season before while United were still Newton Heath, to a huge 11,000. John Henry Davies saw an immediate financial relationship between the performance of Manchester United on the pitch and the attendance of fans at Bank Street. Without television revenue like in today's game or the big sponsorship deals of now, attendance at home games was how clubs made money, not an official cup noodle partner. Davies was a businessman, remember, and a shrewd one. He set out to ensure a benevolent circle was quickly achieved, good, entertaining performances on the pitch, leading to big crowds, a sustainable model. That is one part of Davies' legacy that is not spoken about so much. Here was a man who was committed to ensuring, attacking, entertaining football from Manchester United. Of course, it was Samat Busby and other managers like The Doc and Fergie who managed to instil this as a complete ideology at United. But the origins of fast-attacking, entertaining football come from John Henry Davies. They came in search of profit and sustainability for a business model, but it's no doubting that they did come from here. Before John Henry Davies arrived at United, Newton Heath had been a team of brutes, as we spoke about earlier. Davies' model of sustainability meant investment in the team and ruthlessness. James West resigned in 1903, jumping before being pushed. He was given a pub to manage by Davies. The following month, the FA began to investigate him for illegal payments for players, a story which is covered in more detail in the Harry Stafford episode of United Through Time. To replace him, Ernest Magnol came in, arriving from Burnley. He was United's first proper manager, or at least proper football manager. He focused on the football, but also the transfers. Magnell, Harry Stafford and Louis Rocker teamed up at various moments to bring in a selection of the country's finest footballers. Within a year or two players like Harry Modger, Dick Duckworth, Charlie Roberts, Bob Bonthron were signed players who would win the cup and league a few years later. There were a lot of flops signed too but for every player that came in like William Bunce who only played two games for the club there was both someone like Dick Pegg who played 51 times and someone like Alex Bell who played 309 times and it all paid off. In 1902, Newton Heath had finished 15th in the 2nd Division. In 1903, Manchester United had finished 5th under James West. Magnol came in and he guided United to a 3rd place finish in his first two seasons at the club in 1904 and 1905. In the 2nd season, United won 24 out of their 34 games. The next year, Magnol achieved promotion, finishing 2nd, and United also reached the 4th round of the FA Cup after beating holders Aston Villa. Winston Churchill had opened the first round of the FA Cup tie against Staple Hill, a 7-0 victory for United. It's said he didn't attempt to kick a ball on the Bank Street pitch, since most people who stepped onto it sunk into the mud down to their ankles. Stafford, Rocker and Magnall had assembled a superb team thanks to the money that Davies provided. Modger, Sagar, Duckworth, Roberts-Bell, the trio of defenders who had a tobacco brand's name after them they were so good. Duckrow bell and in 1906, the FA brought the axe down on Manchester City for various financial misdemeanors, mainly paying over the player wage cap of four pounds. Gary James, Manchester football historian, explains the punishment.
3: City received the biggest punishment
2: um, that had ever appeared in, in football. But, you know, basically, I mean, 70
3: players were were banned from playing for the club. The manager was suspended initially for life, but eventually, you know, he was he, he was allowed to manage again later. But, but initially suspended for life the directors uh, the chairman was suspended most of the directors including the finance sector and the club was it wasn't dead obviously but it was as close to being dead as as perhaps a football club could be at that time
2: and United capitalised as told in episode 2 over to the red side of Manchester came Billy Meredith football's first superstar so too did Sandy Turnbull Jimmy Bannister and Herbert Burgess United's brilliant squad was now star-studded too they were on their way to the biggest successes of them all Manchester
3: United that thanks to the investment from Davis, the um, management of Ernest Manglow and obviously people like Stafford, United were their strongest ever position.
2: Jimmy Turnbull and Harold House were also signed to join the City Quartet, and so a title-winning squad at Manchester United had been formed. After promotion in 1906, Meredith, Turnbull, Bannister and Burgess made their debuts for United on New Year's Day of 1907, with their suspensions by the FA coming to an end. The Reds finished 8th in their first season back in the top flight. Davies' investment and changes at the club were going to pay off. Great talent and big crowds, both due to the investment from Davies, some in the stadium and some in the players. There was some fortune of course. The situation at City was big for United. It gave them 3 or 4 of the best players they could possibly have. It also drew even more support from the people of Manchester, people who had previously chosen to watch City over United but now followed the talented players of Meredith and Turnbull to Bank Street. The other fortune for Davies was that Harry Stafford had fallen on his sword in 1904 and accepted a three-year ban from football for the financial mismanagement at United and a failure to keep books properly. In December
4: 1904, Stafford and James West were banned by the FA for three years for making illegal payments to players and failing to keep the books in order which I should have read, failing to keep the books full stop because apparently Stafford burned them. The duo took the rap so as not to draw attention to the extent of Davis's autocracy within the club, and they were rewarded accordingly. West became landlord of the union on Canal Street, while Stafford moved into the Imperial Hotel on Piccadilly, one of uh, Davis's largest establishments and prime location close to the London Road Station.
2: By Stafford doing that, Davies was exonerated, temporarily at least, allowing him to keep pumping money into the club and have full control of it. Had Stafford not done so, it's possible United could have been punished in a similar fashion to City. The football authorities despised John Henry Davies from the off. But United escaped serious punishment. They had a stadium nearly fit for champions, a team deserving of a title and an owner who had poured money and deserved a reward in the form of a silver trophy. All of that in part two of United Through Times, episode three. John Henry Davies, out next week, covering two league titles, an FA Cup, a move to Old Trafford, United in the 1920s, and how United's bitter rivalry with City began. Thanks for listening to part one.
1: Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.